The reading is taken from the first book of Kings, chapter 12. Israel rebels against Rehoboam. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he'd fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you'll be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice that the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who were serving him. He asked them, what's your advice? How should I answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king didn't listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ehijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. The next part is the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. This week, I was interviewed for a podcast on leadership, on the practice of leading. And as I had been kind of preparing myself for this over the last couple of weeks, I found myself pondering what kind of, what kind of leader am I? and uh, maybe what my instinctive and distinctive style might be. What could I do to be a better leader? 
I ended up having a long conversation about this uh, down in Salisbury with my pastoral supervisor, who's uh, principal of Sarum College down there, which I'm hoping is uh, where a lot of you are going to be joining us for our wonderful church weekend. Uh, by the way, on that, do let me have your name sooner rather than later. We've already had half the places go, and uh, we, want to, we want to have a good crowd from the congregation there. Um, but I was pondering this, this topic of leadership, and interestingly, the podcast that had asked me to contribute isn't a Christian one. Its audience is secular leaders. And I, I kind of looked back and listened to some recent episodes and discovered that they'd been uh, focusing on a range of different leadership styles. Uh, they identified uh, and had interviewed people under the titles of the influential leader, the motivational leader, the self-aware leader, and intriguingly, the autistic leader. What they wanted to speak to me about from a Baptist Christian perspective was this idea of being a servant leader. It's certainly a biblical image. It's something that uh, people often bring up when thinking about leadership in Christian institutions. And if I think back to the days when I was uh, teaching at the Baptist College in Cardiff, and the, the university there and training ministerial students in the, the task of forming them to be ministers. We used to do a lot of reflection with people about what their natural leadership style was and what leading in a church context might look like. We often say, don't we, that we want leaders after the pattern of Christ, who came, as the song so memorably puts it, not to be served, but to serve. We nearly had that song this morning, The Servant King. If we'd had a fifth space for a fifth song today, that would have been it. In the Baptist tradition, which this church is part of, um, we even use the word minister for our ordained clergy. This is, in case you didn't know, a word which comes from the Latin word for servant. I often ponder this is something some of our government ministers could do well to remember. And we use this word minister, meaning servant, rather than words like vicar or priest, because those infer a kind of intermediary function with the clergy in some way standing between the congregation and God. And we use minister rather than pastor or rector. Those are words which infer something of a more shepherding sense of leadership, ushing the congregation as a shepherd ushers their sheep. So what then actually is servant leadership? Is this really an oxymoron that doesn't make sense? Well, I think we get the beginnings of an inverse answer to this in our reading for this morning as we continue our lectionary readings for this autumn, taking us through God's revelation to the Jews as we engage with passages in the Hebrew Bible. Our story this morning, with all of its confusing and complicated names of Jeroboam and Rehoboam and so on, it's a story of leadership gone badly wrong over multiple generations. It's a story exploring the catastrophic effects that bad leadership has on the people of the land of Israel as the nation divides against itself as a response to oppressive, destructive, violent and self-serving leaders. Sometimes, perhaps thankfully, you can learn as much from bad examples as from good ones, as much from the terrible leadership exercised by these kings of ancient Israel as from the Messiah who embodied what it is to truly be the servant king. And, you know, in our world, bad leadership often seems all around us. From far-right nationalistic leaders to profit-driven business leaders wanting to continue to plunder the earth's resources with no thought to the future. Not all business leaders are like that, I hasten to add. There are some really good ones. But I was listening to Steph um, Govan's Money podcast just this morning, and she was talking about the leadership in the oil industry, 
which is still making huge investments in oil extraction to run generations into the future. And uh, they were bemoaning this as an example of leadership that is short-sighted and self-serving. We have leaders who are quick to war and violence. We have leaders who are indecisive in defense of the weak. We have leaders, sadly, in church life sometimes who are abusive. The British literary critic Terry Eagleton, he's always good value, by the way. If you've not come across Terry Eagleton, he's worth reading. He addresses this trend in his book On Evil, and he offers this reflection. He says, evil is a form of transcendence. Even if, from the point of view of good, it is transcendence gone awry. Perhaps it's the only form of transcendence left in a post-religious world. We know nothing anymore of choirs of heavenly angels, but we do know about Auschwitz. Maybe all that now survives of God is this negative trace of him known as wickedness. Rather, as all that may survive of some great symphony is the silence which it imprints in the air, like an inaudible sound as it shimmers to a close. Perhaps evil is all that now keeps warm the space where God used to be. And I wonder if perhaps something of this has always been the case that when we read of terrible leaders such as Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all the other bad kings of the books of the kings in the Hebrew Bible, what we find in the descriptions of them, what we find in their despotism is an echo of a hope, a hope and a dream and a memory that things don't have to always be this way, and that another better way of being human is possible, another better way of leading is possible. A hope that it is not true, as my dad often says to me, they're all as bad as each other. Maybe there is a better way. Just as many in our world, as Eagleton memorably puts it, know nothing anymore of choirs of heavenly hosts, but we do know about Auschwitz. So, too, the Israelites in the northern kingdom, in the turmoil after Solomon's death, they knew little or nothing about covenant loyalty and temple worship, but what they knew about were Jeroboam's golden calves. All that survived of the worship of God in this time was this negative trace of God, now known as wickedness, which was made known through the bad kings and their oppression of their subjects. It was made known by the prophets who cried out against the apostate altars, proclaiming in their time the word of God that surely a better way still yet was possible for people living in dark times. And I wonder if in our times of evil in our world, of leadership gone awry and death stalking the world, whether this story from this ancient time of ancient Israel, whether it can help us too trace the negative imprint of God in our world, and whether it can draw from us the prophetic voice of the word of God. That's why we had that hymn we just sung. Can you hear God calling you to speak out of God's word in a world that does not want to hear it, but which longs for it because all it knows is cynicism and worse? So to 1 Kings. This is a complicated story, not least because of all the names. So I hope you found the Dramatis Personae a, a little helpful in this. We're just going to spend a few minutes with this story and see what themes emerge for us now. 
uh, precedents for the tragic story of a divided Israel were set long before the arrogant choices of Solomon's son Rehoboam and his rival Jeroboam. King Saul, who started out as a good king but ended up as a bad king, as uh, Seller and Yeatman might put it, some of you get that reference, those of you who don't look up 1066 and all that, but King Saul, the first of the kings of Israel, had begun the process of uniting the various tribes. Up until uh, this point, Israel had been kind of disunited tribes, forming local alliances here and there. And, and it was Saul, the first king, who began drawing them together, a process which then found its completion under King David, who managed to be both a good king and a bad king at the same time. Uh, he completed this process, and he made Jerusalem a city located in the land allocated to the tribe of Judah down in the south. He made this the capital city of a whole of Israel. And through the reigns of these first two kings, Saul and then David, Israel remained conscious of their sort of tribal identity and the tribal land allocations. So uh, the story goes that when Israel was kind of first conquered, as, as the Israelites came in and, and took over the land at the end of their 40 years in the wilderness, they allocated it into various sort of tribal areas. And even though Saul and then David managed to unite these tribes politically, people were still very aware of their homeland and the, the allegiances of their local tribe. I guess an analogy would be a bit like the United Kingdom. You know, we have been a United Kingdom for quite a long time, but I spent quite a long time in Wales, and trust me, it doesn't feel so united from Wales. And I know the same is true in Scotland, and I've got friends who are part of the uh, Freedom for Yorkshire Party, and I know there's independence for Cornwall, and some have said, well, what about independence for London? It doesn't take very long for a United Kingdom to begin to fragment under poor leadership, does it? And that's what we begin to see going on in Israel. So David dies and uh, his son Solomon takes over and things start to fall apart. Uh, towards the end of David's reign, uh, you get this rebellious cry emerging, every man to his tents, Israel. And we need to understand that the distinction here is between Judah, which is the large tribal allocation in the south with Jerusalem as its capital city, and all the other tribes. And all the other tribes tended to call themselves Israel, and Judah called itself Judah. But because, uh, and I guess a bit like London, Jerusalem, the capital city, was located in the south, the northern tribes felt pretty hard done by Israel felt pretty hard done by at the hands of the leaders down in the south in Jerusalem in Judah. And this Israel-Judah distinction was further magnified when Solomon, David's son, started levying taxes on the north, uh, forcing the tribes of northern Israel into labor in order to generate money that he wanted to flow back to the capital city of Jerusalem in Judah in the south so that he could use it for lavish building projects. King Solomon's reign could be described as the precise opposite of a leveling up the north project. He was taking the money from the north and flowing it into the south. Solomon became a bit like Pharaoh of old, using his people to support his huge households, to establish his capital city, his forts, his international trade agreements. Uh, he didn't levy the same taxes on his own people in Judah. Those living in the home counties around Jerusalem got away quite well. Actually, it was the northerners who bore the brunt of Solomon's taxation program. Judah in the south was consistently favored while the remaining tribes of Israel in the north were afflicted even to the extent that some of Israel's northern territories ended up being given to a, a, a local king in Tyre called Hiram. So Solomon was actually giving away some of his land because he valued it so little in the north. Despite his reputation as a wise ruler and a good king, the biblical account tells of Solomon turning away from his early humble dependence upon the Lord and we get accounts of Solomon starting to worship other gods. We tend to think Solomon's great. He started out great, he ended up quite bad. 
And so serious was all of this, this huge political maelstrom within Israel under Solomon's leadership, that the Lord had intervened, we're told. Just a chapter before our reading from today, uh, the Lord had sent a warning to Solomon that the kingdom would be torn from his son and given to a usurper if Solomon and his son did not mend their ways and start ruling their country with justice and equity. And yet in our passage today from 1 Kings 12, we find we are at a turning point. There is a possibility for a united, prosperous, godly future doesn't go that way, but that possibility is still there. So Solomon has, has died and his son Rehoboam has inherited his father's mantle as king and uh, Rehoboam goes up to Shechem, which is up in, in Israel, in the northern area. It's, it's, it's outside, of, outside of the home county of Judah. And he goes there in order to invite the northern tribes to come and recognize him as their king too. Shechem is situated in a narrow pass between the mountains of Gerizim and Ebal. It's a place now known as Tel Balata, and it's near Nablus in the occupied Palestinian territory of the West Bank. And these days it's home to a small community of Samaritans. Anyway, this is where Rehoboam goes to to be made king. And this confirmation of Rehoboam's kingship at a city outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judah, was clearly felt to be necessary, given the strength of the northern tribes and their history as a separate identity from Judah. A bit like modern politicians making sure they put in some time in Newcastle and Liverpool and Manchester. We've not forgotten the north, they say. And so our story picks up with a complaint. As the northern tribes of Israel come potentially to make Rehoboam their king too, but they also come with a critical question for him. As the condition for their continued support of King David's dynasty, they ask Rehoboam to lighten their hard service, to lighten the heavy yoke that his father Solomon had laid upon them. And Rehoboam, in a moment of good leadership, I think, shrewdly asks, shrewdly asks for some time to consider their demand. Unfortunately, he did not use that time to turn to the Lord or to the prophets for advice. Instead, first he consulted the elders, those who had stood before his father Solomon as advisors. And they attempt to teach Rehoboam the art of diplomacy. They shrewdly point out that Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, will be his servants forever if he will just serve them for one day. They advised him to give good words. And their answer indicates that they may well have opposed Solomon's policy of consistently exacting such a heavy toll from his subjects. They knew that this approach of sweet-talking Israel, giving a little to gain much, would retain the unity of the kingdom. This is the servant leadership that is found in this passage. And when I was researching this sermon, I kept finding people who were saying, this is a great example of what it means to be a servant leader. This is the precursor for servant leadership after the style of Jesus. And the more I read it, the more I thought, you know, it's absolutely no such thing. The servant leadership that the elders encourage Rehoboam to embrace is a very long way from the example of Jesus. I'm not sure it's something that I'd seek to emulate in church life. The elders may have been politically cunning, but feigning short-term service to extract loyalty is not true servant leadership. This is more what one might expect of an expedient and pragmatic national leader as the elders saw the discontent in the northern tribes and knew that Rehoboam had to ease their burdens at least for a little while in order to continue to control them as his subjects. Rehoboam, however, somewhat surprisingly, rejects this probably quite good political advice. And instead he turns to the boys, those who had grown up with him. 
And the narrator here shows his contempt for the king's young friends, twice calling them the children who'd grown up with him. If you do the maths on the numbers, these are probably men in their early 40s. But the narrator's very clear. These are, these are the boys. These are the kids. These inexperienced youth suggest to Rehoboam a harsh answer to Israel's request that their yoke of service be lightened. The crudity of the statement about his little finger being thicker than his father's loins is amusing if you have the humor of a 14-year-old boy. But as an act of international diplomacy, I think it smacks more of the leadership style of Donald Trump at his most exuberant. The obvious meaning is my father's yoke was heavy, but I'm going to add to it. His whips were brutal, mine will be worse. And the contempt that Rehoboam and his friends had for the elders and their northern kin here is clear. Solomon, despite his reputation for wisdom, had effectively brought people back to Egypt, figuratively speaking, enslaving them in the service of lavish building projects such as the Jerusalem temple and reversing the mighty act of deliverance that God had done under Moses. And Rehoboam here had the opportunity to become a servant king, to do it better, but instead he chose to require even harsher service than Solomon had established. At this point, Jeroboam steps to the fore, a kind of worker's hero. I imagine him as a trades union leader, you know, one of the big ones, maybe, maybe the leader of the Transport and General Workers Union, that kind of guy. Jeroboam stands up for the rights of the oppressed. He comes back from exile to start giving voice to those who have had it with being exploited. And Israel, in the end, chooses Jeroboam as their new king. One who, unlike Solomon, did not acquire horses or wives or similar. In the preceding chapter, the Lord had promised Jeroboam an enduring dynasty if he would listen and do right and walk in God's ways. Could Jeroboam be the leader of Israel that Rehoboam had showed he was inadequate to be? But well, the answer here is no as well. Instead, fearful of losing the loyalty of Israel, he too turns his face back towards Egypt. And he remembers the golden calves made by Egypt when Moses was busy up the mountain communing face to face with God. And so Jeroboam, instead of leading the northern tribes back to worshipping the Lord, erects these two golden calves in Bethel and Dan and leads his people instead into the sin of idolatry the worship of man-made goods. And meanwhile, back in Judah, Rehoboam also went on to build high places and other abominations, continuing the evil Solomon had brought into the kingdom of God, leading people in the south into the worship of other gods too. And it feels at this point like the worship of the Lord has been lost in both the north and the south. Two leaders who have the possibility to do it right, both of them turn catastrophically bad. As I said, this story is an object's lesson in bad leadership. We find leaders here embracing violence, exploiting the weak, and giving free rein to their sins of pride and avarice. And in many ways, I think this remains a story that rings true to our contemporary world, with leaders in our time also prey to these same temptations. The conflict between Israel and Gaza finds its ideological roots in this story of a land and people divided under terrible leadership. And the challenge of the elders to find a way to give some ground today in order to win some peace tomorrow. Whilst it may not be the best example of servant leadership, I think leaders on both sides at the moment in the Holy Land could do with working out what it is to give a little today to win some space for tomorrow. We need a move in our world away from political posturing and an embracing 
and towards an embracing of political process. And the stark warning of Jeroboam and Rehoboam is that those who turn from God's peaceful path set in place patterns of violence that have the capacity to endure for generations. Had Rehoboam been a servant leader, even if only for one day, had he listened to his elders and eased the burdens Solomon had leveled against his northern kin, had he rejected Solomon's pharaoh-like policies and embraced a better kind of leadership, had he returned to the ways of righteousness and trusted in God's mercy, then possibly, maybe, by the mercy of God, the disaster that follows could have been averted. And so we're back to the present and what it means to be a leader in our time. I don't think that the pragmatic expediency of the elders is what we're called to, even though in a world of complex geopolitics, I think it would prove infinitely preferable to what we often actually get. But we, we as God's people, you and me, we are called to something better than this. Servant leadership ministering among the people of God is something we need to discover together as we learn from the example of Jesus. Servant leadership after the pattern of Jesus, you see, is always about setting people free, about liberating them from whatever it is that oppresses them. Jesus served in just this way, changing the lives of all those who encountered him. And we are called to this servant leadership. Not just me, we don't just have one leader in this church. We are called to exercise leadership in this community and in our world in a way that embodies the example of Jesus. The phrase servant leader came to the fore in the 1970s. Uh, it was uh, coined by a chap called Robert Greenleaf. And I'd just like to read you uh, a paragraph that he wrote. He says, the servant leader is a servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. Then conscious choice brings one to aspire to lead. That person is sharply different from one who is a leader first. Perhaps because of the need to assuage an unusual power drive or to acquire material possessions, the leader first and the servant first are the two extreme types of leadership in our world. And between them, there are shadings and blends that are part of the infinite variety of human nature. The difference manifests itself in the care taken by the servant first leader to make sure that other people's priority needs are being served. And the best test and the difficult to administer test is are those being served growing as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, more like themselves, more likely themselves to become servants? And what is the effect on the least privileged in society? Will they benefit or at least not be further deprived? A servant leader focuses primarily on the growth and well-being of people and the communities to which they belong. And while traditional leadership generally involves the accumulation and exercising of power by one at the top of the pyramid, servant leadership is different. The servant leader shares power, puts the needs of others first, and helps people develop and perform as highly as possible. And friends, this is a calling for each of us, because as Baptist Christians, we share in the priesthood of all believers. We are all priests in the kingdom of God, and therefore we are all leaders, and we are all servant leaders after the pattern of Christ. And so because I think you probably want to know, after my conversation with my pastoral supervisor, we identified that my personal style of leadership is probably twofold. It is deeply collaborative, and it is also quite strategic. I hold leadership to be a task that we do with others. I do not embrace the loneliness of command.
But I also think it is the task of the leader to help their community achieve their shared goals, to develop the strategies that will get us from where we are to where we want to be. And well, I guess you can be the judge of how well I do or don't do this. But the point is, actually, that none of this is about me, despite the fact I'm the one you've been listening to for 25 minutes. It's all about God. It's all about God and God revealed in the person of Christ. It's about God with us by the Holy Spirit, calling each of us to works of ministry, to the service of others, and through service to prophetic leadership in a world that so desperately needs to encounter a better way of being human. This is a call to us, embodying and living the gospel of Christ. I'll start with a short poem by Ella Kaminsky. At the trial of God, we will ask, why did you allow this? And the answer will be an echo. Why did you allow all this? Let us pray. We serve a God who sees all human life as inconceivably precious, who has taught us through his son to stand up for the rights of those who are oppressed, to resist empire, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to sacrifice everything to draw each other closer in love. He weeps as we weep as we witness genocide. So we pray for the children of Palestine, for the thousands who have been killed in the last three weeks, for those surviving, that they will live to tell us their names. We pray for the innocents lost on October the 7th, and the millions who are still grieving the violence of the Nakba and the ensuing 75 years of oppression. We pray for those who are grieving, both the immediate grief of losing those you love before their time and the anticipatory grief felt by those under siege. With Christ, we grieve those Palestinian families who have no one left to grieve for them. We pray for the hearts of politicians, particularly in the global north, that their hearts will turn away from warmongering and they will seek a ceasefire. We pray for the protesters, among them our friends in the occupied territories that continue to put their bodies on the line to petition for peace, and those facing the full weight of the legal system for resisting the weapons trade. We pray that we as Christians will not double down on the sins of our forefathers. We will not align ourselves with power against the powerless. We will not abandon the fruits of the spirit for the worldly rewards offered by the military industrial complex. We will not stand idly by in the face of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, colonialism and imperialism, tribalism and rampant capitalism. We will not fold our hands and close our eyes to the suffering of the world because the wages of these sins have been untold death and destruction across centuries. We pray that we will not match the silence left by the cutting of communication with silence of our own, that in prayer and protest we will raise our voices, that a world beset by crisis will hear the voice of the church as a balm to suffering we pray for justice, without which peace is mere illusion. We pray for courage, that as we begin to count the cost of standing up for what is right, we, like the apostles, will not waver. We pray for hope, because that is Christ's promise to us, and that is our promise to the world, that we as Christians will work, pray, march, petition, and love that hope into existence, that we will be the evidence of God's love for the world. Amen. And now a blessing. 
Lord, let us go forth into the world in peace, dedicated to your service. May we hold fast to that which is good, render to no person evil for evil, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the needy and the afflicted, and honour all people. And may God's blessing be upon us and remain with us always. Amen.